the ghost of St. Valentine's Day Massacre. After Chicago gangsters lured their rivals into an ambush, they thought they had enjoyed the last laugh. What they failed to consider was the existence of another syndicate, one from the other side. During the Roaring Twenties, Al Scarface Capone ruled Chicago, be it gambling, prostitution, bootleg whiskey, or anything else illegal or immoral. Capone and his gangsters controlled it. Almost no one, including the police, dared to stand up to Capone and his men because it meant, certainly, winding up at the wrong end of a gun. Still, one man was determined to dethrone Capone, George Bugs Moran. Moran and his Northside gang had been slowly muscling their way into Chicago in an attempt to force Capone and his men out. As 1929 began, rumors indicate that Capone was planning to take care of Moran. As the days turned into weeks, nothing happened. Moran and his men began to relax, let their guard down, but that would prove to be a fatal mistake. On February 14, 1929, six members of the Northside gang gathered inside the SMC Cartage Company at 2122 North Clark Street. With them was a mechanic, John May, who was not a member of the gang, but had been hired to work on a member's car. May brought along his dog, Highball. They had him tied up to the bumper of one of the cars he was working on. At approximately 10.30 a.m., two cars parked in front of Clark Street entrance of the building. Four men, two dressed as police officers, and two in street clothes got out and walked into the warehouse. Once the men were inside, it is believed they announced that the warehouse was being raided. Everyone lined up facing the brick wall, believing that uninformed men were indeed police officers, all of Moran's men along with John May, did as they were told. Suddenly, the supposed raiders began unloading more than 70 rounds of a machine gun towards these men, and these seven men were brutally murdered. After the slaughter was over, two men in street clothes calmly walked out of the building with their hands up, followed by two men dressed as police officers. To everybody nearby... It appeared as though there was a shootout had occurred and that the police had arrived and arrested two men. Minutes later, neighbors called police after hearing strange howls coming from inside the building. When the real police arrived, they found all several mortally wounded. One of the men, Frank Rosenberg, lingered long enough to respond to one question. When the authorities asked who shot him? He responded, No one. Nobody shot me. The only survivor of the melee was Highball, the dog. When the word of the massacre hit the newswire, everyone suspected that Al Capone had something to do with it. Although Al Capone swore that he wasn't involved, most people felt that he had orchestrated the whole thing in a way to get rid of Bugs Moran and several of his key men. There was a problem. Bugs Moran wasn't in the warehouse at the time of the shooting. Why he wasn't there is still not clear. But one thing is certain, 
February 14, 1929, was Bugs Moran's luckiest day. Police were unable to pin anything related to the crime on Capone. Charged two of his henchmen, John Scalisi and Jack Machine Gun McGurn, with the murders. Scalisi never saw the inside of a courthouse. He was murdered before his trial began. Charges against McGurn were eventually dropped. However, he was murdered seven years later on Valentine's Day in what appeared to be a retaliation for the 1929 massacre. Publicly, Al Capone may have denied any wrongdoing, but it appears that the truth literally haunted him until his dying day. In May 1929, Capone was incarcerated at Philadelphia's Eastern State Penitentiary, serving one year stint for weapons possession. Such a span was considered easy time by gangster standards, but Capone's time inside would be anything but. Haunted by the ghost of James Clark, who was killed in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Capone was often heard begging Jimmy to leave him alone. The torment continued even after Capone was released. One day, Capone's valet, Jaime Cornish, saw unfamiliar man in Capone's apartment. When he ordered the man to identify himself, the mysterious figure slipped behind a curtain and vanished. Capone insisted that Cornish, like himself, had seen the ghost of Clark. Some say that Clark didn't rest until Capone passed away on January 25, 1947. Over the years, the warehouse in which St. Valentine's Day Massacre took place transformed into a morbid tourist attraction. As curiosity seekers felt compelled to see the sights for themselves. When the building was demolished in 1967, the wall against which the seven doomed men stood, it was demolished, dismantled brick by brick, and sold at auction. An enterprising businessman purchased the bricks and eventually sold each one, but many of them were returned soon after. According to unhappy customers, their luck took a nosedive after they purchased the ghoulish souvenirs. Illness, financial ruin, divorce, even death caused the frightened owners to believe that the bricks were cursed. As for the infamous massacre site, nothing much is left. A nursing home owns the land and has left the area vacant, save for a parking lot and a few trees. Some people have reported hearing gunfire and screams as they pass by the site, and people walking their dogs near the lot claim that their furry friends pull their leashes and try to get away from the area. Perhaps they sense the ghostly remnants of a bloody slaughter that took place so many years ago. If you want a good scare, check out the same site that had the same valentine's day massacre and you never know maybe you'll sense or see something or hear something let's try another story beer wine spirits the haunted limp mansion there's no other place in st louis missouri with a ghostly history quite like the limp mansion it has served as many things over the years, 
stately home, boarding house, restaurant, bed and breakfast, but has never lost the notoriety of being the most haunted place in the city. In fact, in 1980, Life magazine called Lent Mansion one of the 10 most haunted places in America. The Lent Brewery and the Lent family itself gained recognition during the mid-1800s, although they were credited for making one of the first lager beers in the United States and once rivaled the annual sales of Anheuser-Busch. Few people remember much about the Lemps today. Most people in St. Louis can barely even recall the Lemps' once-made beer. They are now more familiar with the family's mansion on the city's south side other than the decaying brewery that stands two blocks away. The Lentz have been gone for years, but their old house stands as a reminder of their wealth and the tragedies that plagued them. Perhaps that's why there's still an aura of sadness looming over the place. During the day, the house is a bustling restaurant filled with people and activity, but at night, many people believe the old mansion is haunted. And its ghosts are restless spirits of the limps wandering corridors of the former home seems possible given the enormous number of tragedies that struck the family. Adam Lemp left Germany in 1836 and by 1838 had settled in St. Louis. He had earned the brewer's trade as a young man. And he soon introduced the city to one of the first American lagers, a crisp, clean beer that required months of storage in a cool, dark place to obtain its unique flavor. The new beer quickly became a regional favorite. Business prospered, and by the 1850s, thanks to the demand for lager, Lemp's Western Brewing Company was one of the largest in the city. When Adam Lemp died in 1862, his son William took the reins, and the company entered its period of greatest prominence. After the death of his father, William began a major expansion of the brewery. He purchased more land and constructed a new brewery, the largest in St. Louis. In 1899, the Lemps introduced the famous Falstaff beer, which became a favorite across the country. Lemp was the first brewery to establish coast-to-coast distribution of its beer, and the company grew so large that as many as a hundred horses were needed to pull the delivery wagons in St. Louis alone. Death Comes Calling The first death in the family was that of Frederick Lemp, William's favorite son and their heir to the Lemp Empire. As most ambitious and hardworking of the Lemp children, he had been groomed to take over the family business. He was well-liked, happily married, but spent countless hours at the brewery working to improve the company's future. In 1901, his health began to fail, and in December of that year, he died at the ripe age of 28. Many believed that he worked himself to death. Frederick's death devastated his parents, especially his father. William's friends and co-workers said that he was never the same afterward. He was really seen in public, and walked to the brewery using the tunnel beneath the house. On January 1st, 1904, William suffered another crushing blow with the death of his closest friend, fellow brewer Frederick Pabst. This tragedy left William nervous, unsettled, and his physical and mental health began 
to deteriorate. On February 3rd, on February 13th, 1904, his suffering became unbearable. After breakfast, he went upstairs to his bedroom and shot himself with a revolver. No suicide note was ever found. In 1904, William Jr. became the president of William J. Lemp Brewing Company. With his inheritance, he filled the house with servants, built a country house, and spent huge sums of money on carriages, clothing, and art. Will's wife Lillian, nicknamed the Lavender Lady, because of that fondness that she had of that color, and was soon spending the limp fortune as quickly as her husband. They eventually divorced in 1906, causing a scandal throughout St. Louis. When it was all over, the Lavender Lady went into seclusion. Less drinking, more death. In 1919, the 18th Amendment was passed, prohibiting the manufacturing, transportation, and the sale of alcohol in the United States. This signaled the end for many brewers, including the Limps. Many hoped that Congress would repeal the amendment, but Will decided not to wait. He closed down the plant without notice, thus closing the door on the Limp Empire. With Prohibition destroying the brewery, the 1920s looked to be a dismal decade for the Limp family. And it began on a tragic note with the suicide of Elsa Limp Wright in the 1920s. The second member of the family to commit suicide. Elsa was the wealthiest woman in St. Louis after inheriting her share of her father's estate. After a stormy marriage to a wealthy industrialist, Thomas Wright, between 1910 and 1918, the couple divorced and then remarried in March 1920. Shortly after, Elsa inexplicably shot herself. No letter was ever found. Will and his brother Edwin rushed to Elsa's house when they heard of their sister's suicide. Will had only one comment. That's the Limp family for you. Will's death came a short time later. Will shot himself in the chest. His secretary found him lying in a pool of blood and he died before doctor could be summoned. As with his father and sister before him, he had left no indication as to why he had ended his life. Oddly, Will seemed to have had no intention of killing himself. After the sale to brewery, he had discussed selling off the rest of the assets and said that he wanted to travel. He and his second wife were even planning to trip to Europe. Friends were baffled by his sudden death. With William Jr. gone and his brothers, Charles and Edwin, involved in their own endeavors, it seemed that the days of the Limp Empire had come to an end. But the days of the Limp tragedy were not over yet. Charles was never very involved with the Limp Brewery. His work mostly had been in banking and financial industries, and he sometimes dabbled in politics. But in the 1920s, Charles moved back into the Lent Mansion. Charles was a mysterious figure who became odd, kind of recluse with age. A lifelong bachelor, he lived alone in the rambling old house, and by age 77, he was arthritic and ill. He had grown quite eccentric and developed a morbid attachment to the Limp family home. Because of the history of the place, his brother Edwin often encouraged Charles to move out, but he refused. Finally, when he could stand it no more, 
he became the fourth member of the Limp family to take his own life. On May 10, 1949, one of the staff members found Charles dead in his second floor bedroom. He had shot himself at some point during the night. He was the only member of the family to leave a suicide note behind. He wrote, in case I'm found dead, blame it on no one but me. The Limp family, once so large and prosperous, had been nearly destroyed in less than a century. Only Edwin Limp remained. He was known as a quiet, reclusive man who lived a peaceful life on his secluded estate. In 1970, Edwin, the last of the Limps, passed away quietly of natural causes at the age of 90. Limp Mansion's Hauntings After the death of Charles Limp, the Grand Family Mansion was sold and turned into a boarding house. It soon fell on hard times and deteriorate along with the neighborhood. In later years, stories emerged that residents of the boarding house often complained of ghostly knocks and phantom footsteps inside. As these tales spread, it became increasingly hard to find tenants to occupy the rooms, so the old Lent mansion was rarely filled. The decline of the house continued until 1975, when Dick Pointer and his family purchased it. The Pointers began remodeling and renovating the place, working for years to turn it into a, a restaurant and an inn. But the Pointers soon realized they were not alone in the house. Workers told of ghostly events occurring, such as strange sounds, tools that vanished, and then reappear again in other places, an overwhelming feeling that they're being watched. After the restaurant opened, staff members began to report an odd experience Glasses were seen lifting off the bar and flying through the air. Inexplicable sounds were heard, and some people even glimpsed actual apparitions. Visitors to the house reported that doors locked and unlocked on their own. Voices and sounds came from nowhere, and even the lavender lady has been seen. These strange events continue today, so it is no surprise that the inn attracts ghost hunters from all around the country. Many spend the night in the house and report their own bizarre happenings, from eerie sounds to strange photographs. One woman awoke to see the specter of a lady standing next to her bed. The ghost raised a finger to her lips as if asking the woman not to scream, and then she vanished. Paul Pointer manages the business today, along with his sisters Mary and Patty. They all accept the ghost as part of the ambiance of the historical old home. As Paul once said, people come here expecting to experience weird things. Unfortunately for us, they are rarely disappointed. Tune in for the next episode of Ghost Stories right here on Studio 6 Paranormal Entertainment.